Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Blythe Barno, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that to be Christian in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We would love to hear your thoughts and how you're responding to this world and this moment. We also welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. The music you just heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. I'm excited to be back for my third episode with the Word is Resistance team. As I said, my name's Blythe, and I'm a queer white femme who was raised working class in Ohio, and I now live on the occupied Ohlone land known as Oakland, California. I'm a writer, preacher, community organizer, and minister. I learned what I know about the sacred from harm reductionists, survivors, sex workers, and working class grandmas from my community. You can learn more about me at feminary.wordpress.com. For this week is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, and it says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenant seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This week's scripture was given a title. Title set expectations. They become a sort of lens. So when a reading is titled The Parable of the Wicked Tenants, you go in looking to read about, well, some tenants being wicked. But that's not always what you find. We make a lot of assumptions these days. And I remember what my grandma taught me about that. But often, we don't even know we're doing it. Often, we're using titles that were defined for us, like liberal or radical or conservative. We think we know what they mean, but we get it wrong so often, because usually it's far more complicated than we'd like to admit. I remember once when I was driving along the border of Tennessee and North Carolina, It was about a decade ago, and my first girlfriend had just broken up with me. We'd been on a road trip exploring cities we were considering moving to together. She broke up with me in Asheville, and we still had to drive all the way back to Philadelphia. Needless to say, it was an uncomfortable drive. (laughs) And to make matters worse, one of our best friends was with us with her one-year-old son. I was driving my now ex's car and winding through the mountains. And as we drove, we kept passing truck runoff ramps on the right. Madeline, my ex, was fascinated by them. She didn't understand how they worked. I mean, how is a strip of road that mostly went uphill supposed to stop a runaway truck? In an attempt to lighten the mood and satisfy her curiosity, she suggested that we pull into one of the ramps. Uh, no, I said. (laughs) But she kept pushing, and we got to laughing, and next thing I know, I'm driving into a truck runoff. Now, what they don't tell you is that those truck runoffs, they're not actually solid ground. They're gravel pits, many feet deep. Yeah, I know. We willingly drove into a gravel pit at full speed. 
and surprising to nobody but us, it broke the car. Now my grandpa's a mechanic, so with hurt pride I got out of the car, opened the hood, and pretended I could fix it. But gravel was all the way up into the engine. Now, because we were in the rural south, and the two of us outside of the car were white cis women, within about five minutes, five cars had pulled over to see if we needed any help. Which, of course, we did. As we saw folks pulling up, we all quickly agreed not to tell anyone that we'd done this on purpose. Instead, we would tell them that Viva needed to feed the baby, so we'd pulled over, not understanding what a truck runoff really was. The story helped, but it didn't keep people from laughing at us, and rightfully so. Together, the men who had stopped to help worked to dig our car out of the pit. One grabbed a shovel, another tow rope, and within about 10 minutes, our car was free. But the engine still wouldn't turn over. A couple offered to give us a ride into town. It was Sunday, and the next town was about 20 miles away. I could feel our collective hesitation. Even though these strangers had pulled over to help us, we were still suspicious of them. After all, we were dykes, and they were rednecks. But with little choice, we climbed into the truck. There was an awkward silence as we drove. In the back seat, three queer women, one of them brown-skinned with a brown-skinned baby, and in the front seat, a white working-class straight couple with thick southern drawls and a Jesus fish sticker on the dashboard. I broke the silence with some small talk and asked where they were headed. They said they were on their way to a mission trip in a Kentucky coal mining town. The back seat got even quieter. They were missionaries. Then they asked how we all knew each other. I told them that we'd met at college in New York. The driver of the truck sucked his teeth. Hmm, he said. I don't care much for New York. Madeline kicked me, telling me to shut up. After all, we were depending on them for our safety and each of us assumed that he hated New York because he was a bigoted Southern Christian who hated queers, people of color, liberals, and big city ways. We each passed just enough that maybe, if we kept quiet, he wouldn't realize that we were all of those things. <laughs> In fact, without talking about it, we'd all begun to code switch. Viva sat between Madeline and I, and we referred to her as Vanessa instead of Viva. Still, I was mouthy in those days, so I asked him why he didn't like New York and braced for a fight. Well, he said, pausing for a moment, I went to visit a friend there once, and as soon as I walked out of the subway, I got shot. It was a stray bullet. All I really saw was the subway and the hospital, and I can't say I care to go back. All right, okay then, well, what, what is it they say about assumptions? In this week's scripture reading, we go in assuming we'll find some wicked tenants, but I'm not sure that we do. I can kind of understand the title, though. After all, the tenants are beating and killing people identified as slaves. Of course, that's not really why history called them wicked. The story isn't about their violence so much as that it's about their refusal to give the landowner his produce. 
they were refusing to pay him. It seems kind of reasonable for the landowner to be upset. I mean, we may not like it, but those of us who rent have to pay our landlord. It's just how it goes. In the parable, the tenants come off as greedy and violent. They want to keep everything for themselves. They want to steal the son's inheritance. They wound and murder others in order to stake a claim. Sounds kind of wicked to me. Until you start asking the text some questions. Like, how did the landowner come to own the land in the first place? And why are the tenants refusing payment? And who are the slaves? Scholar William Herzog suggests that perhaps this land actually belonged to the tenants, and they weren't fighting to steal the land, they were fighting to reclaim it. In the time this parable was written, vineyards were things of luxury, and because most land was already allocated, if you wanted to build a vineyard, you'd have to take the land from someone else. Landowners did this by foreclosing on loans to free peasant farmers who couldn't pay because of poor harvests. The landowner would then seize the land, and the once free farmers would become servants, forced to work their land in order to pay the owner. The slaves that the owner sent were attempting to collect what amounts to rent. They were there to exhort this payment by any means necessary, and the tenants fought back. The tenants were peasants who were enslaved by their poverty, fighting slaves who were forced to do the bidding of the landowner. This is not a parable about greed. It is a parable about horizontal hostility, fighting one another instead of addressing oppression together. It is a reminder of all that fighting has cost us. Though it may be labeled as such, this is not a story about wicked tenants killing innocent servants. This is a story about colonization, displacement, and the violence it breeds. To the landowner, both the peasants and the servants are disposable, so they're pitted against one another as a means of extraction meant to serve the elite. Maybe this all sounds familiar to us. Stolen land foreclosures, violence, misunderstood resistance. Revolt may begin to sound appealing. However, Herzog shares that literature from peasant revolts make it clear that the peasants resorted to violence not to usher in an ideal order of justice, but to restore what they had recently lost. The tenants in our story were not trying to overthrow a system. They were simply fighting to maintain what they'd had before. Maybe that sounds familiar too. We spend so much time fighting these days, but too often we are just fighting each other, and too often we are losing our lives, our relationships, our homes, to a fight that seeks to maintain what we know instead of build the world we dream of. We live in a time of divisiveness, like the tenants, the life, land, and labor of people of color continues to be lost to white supremacist capitalism. And like the servants, the white working class have been sent to violently collect for a system that does not value them. You know, redneck did not always mean what it does now. 
In the 1920s and 30s, a redneck was an insult reserved for union organizers, men who worked in the field or mines and whose necks were burned red from the sun. They were labor organizers, fighting for dignity, life, and fair pay. They later used red bandanas to build multiracial unions of white, black, and immigrant miners in the coal fields of Appalachia, the same coal fields those missionaries were driving to a decade ago. After the parable, Jesus recites a section of Psalm 118. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. I come from a white working-class town in Ohio, and during the election, I remember hearing over and over again about what a successful businessman Donald Trump was. Look at all he's built, people would say. Trump Tower shone as some sort of beacon of possibility. But they did not know that after it was completed, the people who built it, people of color, immigrants, and the working class, were cast aside, often unpaid and unacknowledged. We are the stones the builder has rejected, and we must stop waiting for his approval. We must stop warring for rights that were never good enough to begin with. We must once again reclaim our place as the cornerstone of this country, and it cannot be done without joining. That's the purpose of cornerstones. They help to connect two walls and strengthen a foundation. It's time to read beyond titles and start asking some questions. Because these words we use, they're not neutral. We were reminded of that again this week. Wicked tenant, terrorist, explorer, lone wolf. These terms are defined by power and not reality. Because Christopher Columbus was not an explorer, but a colonizer. And in reality, Stephen Paddock did not act alone. He was supported by a legacy of white supremacy that holds his sort of terror softly, that treats him as if he was only wounded and not also premeditating and dangerous. Too often, white supremacy is the lens through which we determine who is worthy of grace. Like all people, Paddock is not just one thing. He wasn't all killer. He wasn't all broken, and he wasn't all alone. As a society, we struggle with contradiction, particularly when it exists within us. But the truth is you can be violent and kind, broken and whole, trying and failing, well-intentioned and dangerous. While it can be difficult to hold the weight of these contradictions, it's a source of hope for me. It means that you can be hurt and still be held accountable. You can be wrong and still deserve comfort. It is an unconditional way of being in community. 
It is the realistic, revolutionary sort of love that's required in order to close prisons, heal communities, and end violence. Because what we pretend not to know is that we are both tenant and landowner. We pretend not to know that you can work for justice all day and still fall to sleep as a colonizer on colonized land each night. That for many of us, our ability to be part of the so-called movement means participating in the gentrification of the town we seek to ally with. It is hard for white people like me to understand that my desire to explore new possibilities for my life, by which I mean my desire to save my own life, has also been a colonizing project. In our either-or thinking, I'm either a queer person escaping the violence of my hometown, or I'm a gentrifier whose presence is a violence to the city of Oakland. The truth is, I have always and ever been both. It is a truth that is not changed or excused by my politic, my work, or my relationships. Our existence is complicated. It would serve us well to stop pretending it isn't. Perhaps then our work for justice could be a bit more honest. Perhaps then our healing would be a bit more possible. But it takes some work. We have to read past the title, accept help from those we don't yet trust, and make unlikely allies. We have to dream past what we know. We have to ask each other some questions. We have to lay down our weapons our self-righteousness, our resentments, our judgments, so that we can choose what future we are going to build together. For this week's call to action, I encourage you to pay attention to titles. See how they're used in conversations, media, and in your own mind. When do you use them? How? What do they excuse? What do they condemn? Who do they excuse? Who do they condemn? And who's missing from the story? With Columbus Day coming up, you'll have plenty of opportunities. What do words like explorer, discovery, and new world do? How are they used to obscure and continue colonization? What do they erase? In honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, the holiday that many celebrate instead of Columbus Day, I also ask you to research whose land you're living on. What are the names of the tribes? If they're no longer living there, why? Where are they now? How did your people come to live there? Are there any requests for support or solidarity from those tribes that you can respond to? For example, in the Bay Area, there's a long-standing fight to save the West Berkeley Shell Mound, a sacred burial site for the Ohlone people. They are looking for support to help pay their legal fees. In the resources section, I'll link to their website 
as well as to a few articles that made me think about some of the titles in a new way. Check them out. Thanks for joining us today. As always, you can find a transcript of this week's podcast on our website. Let us know what you think by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Next week, the wonderful Reverend Ann Dunlap will be returning to discuss lectionary texts for the following week. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. To find our podcast again, simply search for The Word is Resistance on SoundCloud or iTunes. Until next time, may you go forward in the peace and power of the God who loves us for all that we are, and in spite of nothing, the same God that calls us to the work of justice. We are